Hi, I'm Aaron Dembo, the lead writer of Tatsuniko, and you're listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you are listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. And hi, I am Robin Renee. Welcome to episode 136. Yes, and today we get very technical as we share my conversation about AI art with writer and artist Aaron Dembo. And before that, we go into the Geekscape where Robin and I are going to talk about audio technology. And it's not it is technical, but it's not going to be over anybody's head. So I'm not trying to scare anyone off. <laughs> yes, definitely. Especially AI is everywhere, and it's it sort of touches everything we do right now. And I'm really interested and excited to hear this oh, conversation. Yeah. So. Oh, and and Aaron starts out with a a very nice introduction to what the hell AI is and all of that stuff. So it it's a it's a good conversation that we had. Very very cool. Well, as always, I know that those of you who have uh, listened to us for a while know the drill, and those of you who are new, welcome. And I just want to let you know that you can catch our show, uh, The Leftscape, every other Wednesday. And you can subscribe to the show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're on our site, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. And you can also find us on social media at Leftscape on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and maybe elsewhere in the future once we figure out those social media platforms. But we do love to hear from you, and uh, your reviews really help us out. Absolutely. And please do consider supporting us on Patreon. You can join us at any level, starting at $1 a month. All of our Patreon supporters have access to our exclusive segment, We Should Be Recording This. And if you are able, you can increase your contribution and receive other gifts and opportunities. So go check us out at patreon.com slash leftscape. And our most recent We Should Be Recording This, I believe it, we talked about how we protect ourselves from the news. Because we, we talk about the news, but sometimes we need to get away from it. So <laughs> <laughs> this was a good conversation. We have a rewind from our last show. On our last show, Wendy was talking about the Black Rhino and that there was only one left and that once it was gone, that, that would there would be no more left. And I was wondering about that statement. I remembered reading something about that. I'm not sure where that came from. It might have been like a particular in a particular location or something, but well, um, for me, it was a meme on Facebook. Okay. I didn't fact check. So <laughs> there you go. But what I discovered, and I hope this is accurate, is that uh, according to an article in 2022, 2056 black rhinos and 12,968 white rhinos are estimated to remain. And so there's a total of more than 15,000 Overall, that math doesn't work, mm -hmm. does it? I don't know. That's weird. Anyway, <laughs> the current population. Oh, God. Okay. So the current population. It's slightly more. 
Yeah, it's slightly more than fifteen thousand. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's yeah, right. add those two together. Right. But twenty, but two thousand black rhinos is a very it, small amount. It's not a lot. It's it's critically endangered still. So yes. the the gist of that sentiment is is correct. They're um, not extinct yet. <laughs> yeah, but it looks actually. There's been some optimism about them. You know, it's cautious optimism. But so that's yeah what we got from that. But anyway, and, and, yeah, we try to yeah, keep up with I, our mistakes. <laughs> and I also, and I know our last last episode, we talked a lot about death in, and funerals and dealing with grief and blah, blah, blah. And I just wanted to mention, because I, I said something about my spouse getting hit a lot recently and last week he all he had two more funerals to attend last week so it's as much as i would love to put a moratorium on death i can't so to speak <laughs> but yes i'm sorry that's a lot uh, it is yeah that's weird part of life yeah. and so let's make a 90 degree turn in our mood and yes. <laughs> do do our random facts and the news. <laughs> All right, uh, fair enough. And and the and the first random fact is mine. Um, an escaped cow shattered the windshield of a Tesla and left feces on the hood in Pleasanton, California, in early February. The cow was not injured, and she was returned to her owner. And <laughs> there was <laughs> there was no indication of. How the cow wound up on the in, the windshield, or you know, or if this was a a, a statement against the uh, the owner of that I, particular I don't know. company, I don't know. It 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 kind of it kind of looked like the car was parked. Even it wasn't like a, a motor vehicle accident. It's like some cow just said, "I don't like this thing." I don't know, huh. <laughs> and took a crap on the on the shop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, my random fact is that omphalophobia is the fear of belly buttons. People with this fear may avoid the beach, swimming pools, or other places where exposure is likely. In severe cases, they may cover up their own belly buttons with tape or bandages. And I had never heard of that one. It's fascinating to me. I'm impressed that you could pronounce that first try. So... <laughs> <laughs> Because I know I'd stumble over it. <laughs> yeah. It can't be. I know it's it's because it says phobia, it's fear. But how could you, are you like, are they really afraid of them? Or is it just something that they are so, is it more of a fear? Or is it more of a disgust? You know, I, a, dis, I, a dislike, like a severe dislike. I think there's, I don't know. Well, there's a, that would be, that's actually a good conversation. Like what is, what are the delineations between those things? Right. I mean, I've seen people really get unnerved by patterns or, oh, styrofoam peanuts. I knew someone had a thing about them. Wow. I don't know if it was like fear, like they would go run screaming, but they did not want to touch or be around them at all. So it's something. Okay. It's something in that. Yeah, universe. I mean, I. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Wow. And you know. Um, all right. And now uh, it's time for all of the news that we can handle. <laughs> K 
Okay, our first piece is from Tuesday, February 22nd, which is a little old, but it's important. The Supreme Court that day listened to arguments in the landmark case of Gonzalez versus Google. And they're grappling for the first time with whether to make big changes in a 1996 law protecting service providers and publishers from being sued over content their users post. And this decision is going to be huge because it could potentially affect all of the social media platforms. It could, you know, it, it, it would affect any ISP hosting controversial websites, etc. So this is one of the cases I'm going to be keeping an eye on this year. They listened to arguments that Tuesday, and it's too soon to tell how they're going to go on that. That's probably going to be We'll find out over the summer or in the fall. Is this the one where the daughter of someone who's bringing the lawsuit joined ISIS or something like that? And they possibly, yeah. That's that's part of. I, I think that's what I heard about it. That they're saying that YouTube sort of led the person down this pathway of watching videos that right radicalize them, basically. Right. And, and if the, if the judgment goes, you know, if they say, yes, people can sue these providers or these, you know, the, yeah, the service providers, that's going to make things, it's going to change the online landscape significantly. Yeah. I'm not sure how it works without algorithms. I would have to, the algorithms would have to change that. For sure. Yeah. And there would have to be a little, uh, probably a lot more human oversight because, you know, a company, a multi-billion dollar company, I don't think is going to want to protect all of their assets by algorithms alone. Right. You know? Interesting. Well, thank you for keeping an eye on these cases. (laughs) So my new story is that uh, I talked last time about a bill that came up in Montana schools that was meant to to ban the discussion and the teaching of scientific theory. And people were, you know, obviously really up in arms about that because it meant that you basically can't teach science at all, if that's the case, you know. Well, that proposal, luckily, was voted unanimously down, including the original person who proposed it. So he he wants to like rewrite it and bring it back, but the the At there's this overarching smacked thing. Smacked him is, in the face and told him he was an idiot. Like this is a badly written law. Basically, yes. It says at at this hearing, <laughs> uh, some of Montana's top science teachers and students implored lawmakers to do what they did this week and to put the bill bill to bed for good. They said it would stop Montana educators from being able to teach common scientific theories like gravity, atomic theory, and the Big Bang Theory, among others. And the person who brought this, uh, Emmerich is his name, he said the language of the bill I thought was simple, uh, but as I have learned, the simpler a bill is, the more fallout likely it has. So yes, he learned a valuable lesson (laughs) that even if you're trying to ban you know, evolution, which is stupid in and of itself. Oh, is that his, was that his, his actual, that's what he was targeting was evolution? I don't know. I think because it was science, that's what I'm guessing. I could be wrong about that. But I was thinking the theories that upset people lately is like, you know, evolution, which has been forever and critical race theory 
more recently. Mm-hmm. So since this is a science thing, I was thinking maybe that maybe it was like an evolution. Like, because people say, or oh, maybe it's anything with the word theory. Right. Because <laughs> that would cover both. That's true. Very true. And, you know, obviously this guy is not, it did not come into the legislature through being a lawyer because then he would understand how laws are supposed to be written. Right. So anyway. Here you go. Senator Daniel Emmerich of Great Falls. That's who this is. So, yeah. So we'll, well, I want to keep an eye on this one just because the idea of blanket banning whole conversations and whole parts of education, I think, are really not, yeah. not where we want to go. <laughs> No, no. And Montana is not, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of their legislature for tabling this, but it's probably just for, because it was written really stupidly. And I just want to throw out there, we're not going to get into this story, but Florida is going full Nazi with their education proposals now. It's insane. And I don't even want to talk about it. So let's, okay. let's go. That's more than, more, than, yeah, you can more news right than we can handle today. <laughs> okay. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the lawsuits that are going on in the national landscape that I've had trouble trying to keep my brain around because there's a, there's a lot, you know, but one of them is that Dominion, the voting machine company has a $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox news for claiming that their machines were you know, rigging the election, essentially, the 2020 presidential election, which Donald Trump did not win, just for the record. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so one of the things that happened out of this is that the evidence came out that the hosts at Fox News, most of them were privately talking about the people that they were putting on TV and saying, well, they're crazy and this is all lie like talking about Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and just saying that they were crazy, but they would go on the news and go on their shows rather and continue to perpetuate this, you know, all this disinformation. So that's a huge part of this case. And, uh, you know, some people feel like it's the strongest case that you could imagine by some counts accounts for Dominion winning this. And some say that Fox their usual Emma would be to like settle out of court. Other people, more recently I read that it's looking like they're actually going to go to trial with this and maybe they think they can beat it. I don't know. Oh, I I hope so. I hope they do and that they lose. That would be that would be wonderful. really great. And it would give I would it would give the ability for us to get more information about what was happening there too. Yes. And I'm also hoping it would it would you know either get the hosts that promulgated this disinformation sued individually mm. which i would also love to see <laughs> yeah. and and possibly even taken off the air which would be the best possible outcome right but <laughs> yeah. Dobbs is he was one of the people and he's already off the air but tucker you know he's yeah he needs he, to go he's there for yeah, he's 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 such a powerhouse. And it's amazing that it's amazing to realize that it's really just business there from at least yeah. from what some of them said with their own words, you know, that this you know, creating this division in the country is just hey man, yeah, it's, it's good our, for their business. Price, you know? <laughs> so yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what happens with this. So the other one is that 
there's like a whole you can really just do a Trump lawsuit roundup just for him because there's a lot going on. So he's got two state investigations right now, one in New York City about financial fraud, where he was claiming one net worth for, you know, trying to get loans and another for paying taxes. So that right. Very that well. that's his that's his fluid valuation of his various properties in Manhattan. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, and the other one is in Fulton County, Georgia, for the election tampering, where he had the the perfect phone call, basically, yeah. <laughs> where he was asking for votes to be found that would help would make him win uh, Georgia in the presidential election. So that a lot of pundits that I've been listening to tend to think that that's like the strongest case that could actually get him indicted, which would be a first. We haven't had a, a president, a former president indicted before. So that's interesting. But also I should, I, maybe that's not the, well, of, of those cases, that's the stronger one currently. Then there are other two federal investigations led by Jack Smith, the special prosecutor. So he's investigating Trump's attempt to thwart the peaceful transfer of power in connection with the, what do you call the January 6th thing? Insurrection. That's yes. it. <laughs> yes, that. The yes, thing yes. that happened, yeah. The thing, the thing that happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> and also the possession of all the documents that he had at Mar-a-Lago. So that's another thing. So a special, oh, for the Mar-a-Lago one, I'm sorry. I'm getting confused. See, I'm confusing myself. But I know that the special, <laughs> special, one of the special grand juries actually has recommended indictments. And it's kind of become clear that they're recommending indictments, but they're not saying of whom yet. But mm. they're not, they're making it clear that they, well, there's, there's not going to be any big surprises is kind of what they were alluding to. So that seems to say that he's going to be indicted for something, but no one has any official word yet so okay it's, it's still a waiting game but it's just there's a lot happening with all of it so we'll see yeah and also over the weekend another norfolk southern tr southern freight train derailed in ohio on saturday this time near springfield ohio but unlike the the, the wreck last month carrying toxic chemicals, this one poses no health risks, officials insist. So I the, they really need to get their shit together about our trains. And this company is is I don't know. I <laughs> there are no words. It's like you know, somebody I, I, somebody needs to just have like the big slappy hand and slap all these people. The big like, slappy hand. <laughs> I don't know. I I mean, how do you make these people take care of their shit? Because <laughs> this is all this is all happening because they're 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 being neglectful in their jobs. They're not they're not they don't have enough people on the trains and they're running them. They're too long and they're too understaffed and. And it's a recipe for disaster, and we keep having disasters. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not this is not something that is like an insolvable problem. This isn't like global warming, which 
is hopefully solvable, but that that would take efforts of like countries and everybody deciding to do things that nobody wants to do. But this is like this is like, you know, well, we need to make a little less money. Yeah. And put some of the money into and, and into, you go know, back to regu- fixing our regulations shit. that will yes. actually keep things. And follow stable. the regulations they're supposed to be following. Right. Yeah, it's probably I mean, I a combination. This, there are some that get ignored, and there are some that have get taken away because people. Well, this yeah, this is probably fewer. part of the cleanup on aisle Trump stuff. Clean up on aisle forty-five. Yes. Yes, thank you. Clean up on aisle forty-five. This is this is this has got to be a consequence of of four years of his getting rid of regulations. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, just as an aside, that Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a podcast by Allison Gill, who is one <laughs> of the, well, the creator of Muller She Wrote. And it's a, it's okay. A, yeah, it's a good podcast. I like that. And the, the phrase is just excellent. It's, the phrase is gold. Well, yes. Muller She Wrote was also, they're, they're all honestly good title coming up with people. Oh my God. That's. <laughs> Wendy knows words. <laughs> I do, and sometimes I put them in an order that makes sense. <laughs> okay. Well, in other news, whiskey fungus. <laughs> so uh, okay, this is this is very fascinating to me. Whiskey fungus fed by Jack Daniels encrusts a Tennessee town. So. Basically, there's a dark growth that is fed by alcohol vapors that comes from the barrels of aging Jack Daniels. Oh, my God. And it's coated homes, cars, patio furniture. Oh, uh, shit. And so there's a, there's a woman who is, is actually suing in Lincoln County about this. It's fascinating. I mean, apparently this has been a problem around around various distilleries in the past. And I, I, I just never heard of it. It's pretty interesting. But Jack Daniels has six warehouses in that county and they want to expand and people are getting upset that they are yeah. saying like, we have enough, we have enough Focus. of this stuff, you know, <laughs> but I don't know. Like, so, so there's like a controversy around that. Some were saying, well, you can just wash your house and it's not a big deal and other people are saying it's really causing damage but this is a side effect of making whiskey i had never heard about so it's kind of interesting i'm going to post the link to this article because it's it fascinates me but it also sounds like in real life it would not be enjoyable to be close in that situation I don't think it would be either it is kind of amazing that there seems to be a fungus that will eat anything. Yes. Right. There's, you know, there. if you have a thing and there will be, eventually there will be a fungus that will eat it. So, and, and if you, if, and this is to the reader and to you, um, if you haven't seen the documentary Fabulous Fungi, I recommend it. So I think it's on Netflix right now. And I had seen it before, and I just rewatched it recently. And they they showed examples of certain fungi eating 
like plastics or or oil spills or or other things. So that's yeah. why I'm thinking, you know, the I mean their job is to basically, you know, break down living matter and make it available to be re- they're the they're the ultimate recyclers right, it, right. on our planet. And the, and it goes into the mycelium network under the ground and and you know, and it and it talks about you know, fungi being, I mean, getting off completely off topic. Yeah, so well, that kind of documentary but... is definitely my jam. <laughs> but I just want to read a little bit of this. So the, the fungus that thrives off lost alcohol has been noted at least since the 1870s when Antonin Baldon, see, now, that's a word I'm not sure how to pronounce because it's French. Uh, <laughs> the director of French Distillers Association observed a plague of soot blackening the walls of distilleries in Cognac, France. And Ew. so a professor at the Dalai Lama uh, School of Public Health uh, in University of Toronto has been studying the fungus since 2001. This is James A. Scott. And he named the genus Bodonia after, in honor of the guy who first described it, they're sort of looking into any possible health effects and things like that about exposure to this. So it's interesting. Yeah. And it involves whiskey. So I thought I liked the story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There you go. And our our final news item for today is about the Madison, Wisconsin Streets and Engineering Division. And they recently announced the names of the winners of the Wisconsin Saltwise Snowplow Naming Contest. Oh, boy. I'm actually... I am loving how all of these municipalities have decided to name all their snow, their plows and their various trucks and that they solicit names from the popul- the local population. <laughs> the people have spoken and they have chosen wisely with the names Saltimus Prime, Snowby Wan Kenobi, <laughs> Seymour Pavement, and Dolly Plowton falling to the top. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> The quad axle brine truck, which is the kind of truck it is, is now known as Saltimus Prime. And that name edged out 15 other candidates, including Barbara Salters and Sweet Carol Brine. These puns. The name in the race. (laughs) I am am like the Madison, Wisconsin population is coming up with some great names. I love all of these names. Um, The name in the race for the bike path plow, Snowby Wan Kenobi, won in a landslide victory against the runner-up Austin Plowers. (laughs) So all these losing names, like other towns in Wisconsin, go get them. Yeah, that one's pretty good. (laughs) Austin Plowers is pretty good, too. The voting was set up as ranked choice voting, where the voters select their top five picks. And I'm I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. We use that for the Hugo Awards. And I wouldn't mind seeing that for state and federal elections at some point. Yeah, you know, I liked um, how, what we learned about the Australian voting system. I think that would be. Yes. Helpful. Yeah, they're ranked choice, right? That's yeah. how. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then. Oh, the top have, five yeah. candidates. I got just got a couple more crazy names in the race for double wing plow truck were and, and you have to get the name of the of the plow because they're they're riffing off of the kind of plow it is. And I'm guessing the double wing plow has a point in the front and it moves snow out off and off of both directions instead of the ones we see locally that just sort of shoves it onto your driveway. Anyway, <laughs> the double wing plow truck names were. Hung Plow Chicken, Pushy McDrifty Flakes, <laughs> Snowsferatu, 
and Blizzo and the winner Dolly Ploughton. And last but certainly not least, I think I would have gone with Blizzo in that one. That's really great. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Seymour Pavement took home the title of naming the new loader with plow and wing, narrowly advancing past Scooby-Doo with a narrow margin of less than 15 points. And I think think there's an ice cream place near me called Scooby-Doo, actually. (laughs) That's another one. But that is good. Bodie McBoatface has some competition now. Well, there was a pushy McDrifty Flakes. So, you know. That's pretty good. And and with that, uh, that will be all the news we're handling today. Every Saturday from 1pm, come and join us for an hour of really, really smooth music on the Northwest Coast. Spinning only the finest selection of yacht rock, yacht rock adjacent, daytime disco, sunset soul, and all manners of smooth music from right around the globe. Diving deep into the dusty dollar bins of discogs and record stores all around Melbourne to bring you the hidden gems and the classics. It's smooth tunes for rough times. It's an explosion of sunshine through your speakers. It's liner notes and guitar solos. So get down to the northwest coast where only the smoothest will do. Saturdays from 1pm only on Radio PVS. Are you out of your fucking mind? Hi, welcome to the Geekscape, where one of us is going to geek out about a certain topic that maybe the other one doesn't know a whole lot about. And I think Robin was asking me about recording technology. And, you know, I know a little bit about that as I'm the engineer for the show. (laughs) And I've been (laughs) producing music for since there was mute, since there was a, an ability to record things at home, and and I remember doing mixes between two physical, physically separate cassette decks and bouncing tracks back and forth, and I having it sound days. shittier every single time. <laughs> <laughs> Tape his. So yeah, I I know a thing or two, and I you know, and the things I don't know, I have friends that actually made a living doing this, so I always bother them if I have real. It really esoteric question. So anyway, do you have questions for me? <laughs> well, I have a million questions and don't know where to start, you know, because I have never been a real gearhead specifically. I've been more of a songwriter and I've I've been blessed by having really good engineers around me a lot of the time. And yeah, it's like I really want to set up at home and, and really have full capabilities in terms of recording music and voiceovers and podcasts and right. all, all the things, you know? So anything you can tell me about what you have or think is, is state of the art in terms of putting together a home studio, maybe that would be interesting okay. to me. Yeah. I, I don't know how state of the art I am anymore. 
I guess that's what I, I mean. Turn. Like what's new? It's like every time I turn around, it's like I have a rack of equipment that's out of date and I need to get rid of it. Okay. <laughs> it's, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. The thing, the thing about now is it's the entry point for home recording is incredibly low right now. And it's the lowest it has ever been. And, and I don't know that we're ever going to go back to the old ways. And it, and it's actually at the point where I have old recordings on media that I cannot play. And I'm racking my brain to find a place that can like digitize these things for me. I mean, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of places that are digitizing uh, visual media, mm-hmm. audio visual media, like movies and tapes and stuff and, and audio tape, not so much. But nowadays yeah, that, that, I mean, yeah. we've had them. Uh, I have, I that. have, I have a master on, on a dat. Uh, it's like a weird ass dat on like on a VHS tape. It's very weird. I don't even know what machine my producer was using for that. So, and that's anyway. super digital audio tape and they're small yeah, little sorry. type things. <laughs> yeah. I have those and I still have a, a player. I can still do, I can still access those recordings well um and also tape has tape has a shelf life magnetic tape so you know i have i i have still have boxes of cassettes i maybe want to digitize or maybe listen to but anyway nowadays you basically have a computer and everything is done on a computer because the computer is fast enough audio recording is i think it's slow you know milliseconds to a computer is a long time. A computer can do a whole lot of instructions in a millisecond and a millisecond in for audio is nothing. So it can handle, so computers can handle multiple tracks, can handle a lot of different things. So anything that you would have put on tape in the old days, you just dump it onto the computer on your hard drive or your mm. solid state disk, which is I think a better better storage than a hard drive because hard drives can and do die. So how do you do that? Well, okay. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, my laptop has, doesn't have a a physical drive. It has, it's a solid state disc is basically static memory on a chip. Got it. And, and um, that's what your phone is using. That's what you know, your higher end computers have SS, the solid state SSD. If your computer has an SSD instead of an HDD, which stands for hard disk drive, then, then that's, you know, it's not, it, you know, motion doesn't, you know, there's nothing spinning. Like the hard disk drive is, is a little, is a little disk that spins around really fast and has a, has a head that moves across to read data a solid state drive acts just like your main memory except that it's static memory which persists like the one and the zero stays whether the power's on or not okay so you hear if you hear a fan in your computer that's a that's a that's the version fan no if you hear a fan you need a fan to keep everything cool okay so either way yeah 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 the new cpus run very hot and and okay. they need fans, otherwise you overheat and everything melts and breaks and you can't use it. Um, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, when your fan when your fan dies in your computer, that's very bad. And go get a new one. Uh, <laughs> I, I know. I I learned <laughs> that. Was... Yeah, I think we all anybody that's had a computer for any length of time, they learn that one. Right. Okay. You know, and and it's like, 
your your boss skill is is being able to open up your own laptop and and swap out the fan but make sure it's out of warranty before you do that usually if you open oh, up yeah. your if you open up your box that it, it voids the warranty or some shit which i that's a whole other discussion i've been taking <laughs> my computer have. yeah i've been taking my computer to you break i fix oh cool yeah <laughs> they're good <laughs> Uh, is that a chain or is that just a guy? I think it's a chain. I think okay. I don't know how large of a chain it is, but I'm pretty sure I know that they're down in Maryland as well as as one close okay. by me. And the Geek Squad, I've not had great yeah. luck with, so I think I like. Yeah, I like. I like. I, I like the. I like the name of that. So yeah. I'll have to see if they're up here. So your computer is basically your audio workstation, and. There are a lot of different programs that act as your your virtual mixing board. And and I'm just talking about the stuff on the computer. I'm not talking about the stuff you need in the studio to actually record. That's let's we'll get to that in a minute. The the top end of that of the digital audio workstations or DAW, everything is a three-letter acronym because it's a computer stuff. So a DAW or a DAW is a digital audio workstation. And the top, at least the top the last time I was looking, was a, is a program called Pro Tools. And it's not cheap. I don't remember how much it costs now. And it used to come with hardware that you plug into the computer that you plug in all of your you know, your guitars or your microphones and everything else. So it has a, a out, outboard mixer that you plug your physical instruments into, which you're going to need at some point outside the computer. But Pro Tools, the interface looks, there's a lot of different ones that do the same things as Pro Tools. I don't use Pro Tools because it was, I think, four figures when I was getting into the digital audio workstations, and I, I used something called ACID Pro. And I don't know if ACID was an acronym for something or not, but I've been using ACID Pro for a long time. It's mm -hmm. like, I think I think they're, they're up to like version 12 or 13, and I've been using it since version 2. So... And you just update so it when there's updates and you can keep up with it. I up, yeah, I update it when, you know, my computer says, oh, I'm not, I'm not able to run your version that you have now. Like, you know, every time Windows comes out with a new operating system, half your software isn't going to work on it. And that's when you need to upgrade. I upgrade occasionally, like every other, like on the odd numbered releases, I tend to buy it again. And it's running about a hundred bucks, an upgrade. It's not terrible. But it lets me do everything I need to do. And you have like each track is individual and you can put effects on it. It has you have software effects. So you don't have to do everything right when you're recording. You can add that on later. So they have a lot of software effects and a lot of different companies have different effects that plug into your DAW. And you can set up your, your virtual and recording environment that way. And then you need something that's going to plug into your computer so it's at this point it's got to be a usb it has to have an output that plugs that goes usb into your computer it used to be used to be able to go into your audio inputs i think maybe you still can but the sound quality i don't think is going to be as good so on the outside of your computer you need something that's called a analog to digital converter 
Right. Because you need to take the analog waveforms of the instruments that you're playing in, that you're putting in, and your or your vocals, and you have to convert that into digital information that the computer can deal with. They come out with new ones every year, and it and that will depend on what you're wanting to record, like how many inputs you want to have. Like if you want to record an entire band playing live in the studio all at once, like the old days, you'd need a whole bunch of microphone inputs for your drums, and and then you need instrument inputs for or for your guitars and basses, and then you'd need another microphone inputs for your vocals. And and that would so it go starts into, to look like a board, kind of, I guess. Yeah, well, it it looks like a mixing board. It's going to have a million inputs and one output that goes into your computer, and your computer mm-hmm. is the actual mixing board. I mean, you can do. They have boxes that do all of this on the box. You right. know, they have they have that too. I'm pretty um, acclimated to working on computer. I mean, I I've done a bit in Audacity, which is good. I feel like. I don't know, right? So far, it's been like creating, you know, doing edits and things like minor things. Right. Audacity haven't well, done yeah, the, a lot of huge stuff. Yeah, the difference between Audacity, which is a waveform editor, and a DAW, which is a mixer, right. is is Audacity will take like a finish, like basically one waveform, and it could be mono or stereo, and you can play with it and do some things to it. You can add effects and, and do manipulation and cut and splice stuff. But to get a real mix where you're doing multi-track recording, you need a, a, a DAW because Audacity doesn't do multi-track. And it's also, Audacity is free. Right. And you can't that one... Record, I, I thought you could do full recordings I, in Audacity. Maybe you can. Maybe you can. I mean, yeah. back when I, I used the free version, it, it looked it looked just like SoundForge to me. Mm-hmm. So, and that's and that's also a waveform editor. It's not a, an audio workstation. Okay. But I just I bought Ableton, now. and I'm just yeah, getting that's one of those. Starting to get into it, and so that's a whole thing that I've been like overwhelmed, but I'll get there. I just have to yeah step by step, you know. Yeah, Ableton Ableton is another uh DAW digital audio workstation which I have not used. So yeah. uh <laughs> I mean I can give you, you know, general tips. It's very analogous to old school recording where, you know, you were doing tape. You know, you have all your, your tracks, you know, on the screen. If you have like lots and lots of tracks, you kind of want to start grouping stuff. You know, this is more into into workflows. Like like you want to put all your drums in like a drum. You can like in in uh, in Acid Pro, you can make these folder tracks where you can put a whole bunch of tracks in a folder and hide and basically hide them. Or you you know if you do something to them like the volume or something, it it, it affects all of them together. So you could do like you put all your drums in a drum folder and the guitars in a guitar folder and, and stuff like that. So so it, it it cleans out. You don't have too much stuff to look at when you're editing mm-hmm. or when you're mixing. First, you like get all the drum levels for the drum kit yourself, like arranged the way you want, and then you can put them in a folder. And then if you need to bring all of the drums up, you can just bring it up on the folder. It's like having, it's having like a bus, uh, <laughs> and that's a bus is a group of tracks that are being controlled as one track. 
so volume would go up and down all on all the tracks at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you can also put an effects loop on there on that particular, just those by themselves, you know, so that means you can change the reverb on just the drums or just the guitars or, you know, whatever. And I would want to keep those separate as much as possible until you really have to mix down. Exactly. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Right. And, and one thing that I've been noticing is people are starting to not pay attention to like on video is keeping the volume pretty much the same level for, you know, like you, if you're going from between, I just remember, you know, there was a documentary we watched where the audio levels between scenes were noticeably Extremely different. different. Yeah. It was very, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to be polite, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, they were, they were like, you know, I had it turned up for one thing and then it cuts to another scene. It's like, Oh, Whoa, got to turn the volume down. It's like, Holy shit. Right. Um, and that's because the audio track was not normalized, mm -hmm. which is a process that you do at the end. Yes. That's part of mastering. What's normalizing, normalizing as opposed to equalizing. Um, okay. Normalizing is, is volume overall volume and equalizing is frequency based. Okay. When you're equalizing something that's EQ and that all that's doing is taking and depending on how many bands your EQ is, that's each band is a certain frequency range. Like, you know, like 60 Hertz to hundred Hertz, hundred Hertz to 500 Hertz, 500 to a thousand, you know, that kind of thing. And, I'm trying, I think 2000 Hertz is kind of the high end, like that kind of noise. Mm -hmm. That's around 2000 Hertz. So if you're hearing a lot of hiss, you drop down the, like the, the very top end. That's when you're EQing and you see those weird curves. You can boost the bass for certain things or lower, you know, you just, that's where you're adjusting each frequency band to get a particular sound that you want okay got it you know and it's different it's different for music and for speech you know and you know and, and also of course you know men's voices and women's voices have different sweet spots audio sexism so, <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> you know and then we you know when you're getting into like the actual recording you know, there's like a jillion different kinds of microphones and some are, you know, some are workhorses like the Shure SM58, which has right. been around for, it's got to be like 80 years at this I point. I have that mic. Um, yeah, it's classic. Everybody yeah. has that mic. Everybody, <laughs> everybody who's a musician has a SM58 at some point. Right. <laughs> and they're, they're like good enough for a lot of things, but there are other kinds of microphones that record differently. And I'm trying to think, I think the SM58 has a cardioid pattern to it. And that, all right, now we're getting into like very esoteric audio engineering stuff. Cardioid means it's vaguely heart-shaped. Hmm. And it's also what direction the microphone is picking sound up from. Like the the old the Yeti microphone I used to use for the podcast, I've now switched to a headset because it my I don't have a quiet room, <laughs> and I used to use this Yeti microphone that I, I I love it a lot. It has a switch that you can change the recording pattern to like three or four different things 
depending on what it is you're recording and where people are in the room. Like if you're right in front of the microphone, you want a cardioid. If you're recording two people, and I forget the name of this pattern, but it looks like like a Venn diagram with two, two overlapping circles, like to the left and the right. So that will pick up people sitting on either side of the microphone. And it kind of gives you a little bit of stereo separation as well. And you want different kind of microphones for different kinds of recording purposes. For vocals, a cardioid is basically the best thing. And I think I think they also work really well for drums, although they're, they do also make specific microphones for for some of the drums like i think there's one for like for the cymbals on the drums and there's another kind that works better for kick drums and stuff like that i haven't had to mic a drum set in in a recording situation ever only in live situations mm-hmm. and that's a whole other different sound engineering right <laughs> set right. <of> skills <laughs> i mean for and me, mixing for of, live it's like it's, it's different, different too thing. So. yeah yeah i think for me it's just a matter of doing things and learning and having somebody sit with me maybe and help me figure out like what my missing missing pieces are in terms of oh yeah creating a studio yeah. i i probably i mean ideally i want a new computer and just really focus on recording and creating a whole recording station for for things because mm-hmm. like the idea of like unplugging my laptop and like unplugging all the things and coming back and redoing all the time like i don't love that idea but so far i mean no. for the small things i've been recording it's fine because it's just i'm just doing kind of a sketch of something and then mm-hmm. i can pick up and go and whatever but i do want to be able to certainly bring it places so that's just a matter of you know having a second computer to carry yeah. with and re- and perform with and that sort of thing anyway it's a lot to learn but that's that's good. it is yeah it and is, I like Pro Tools. I've, I have not really worked in Pro Tools, but I've I've been recorded via Pro Tools, so I know what it right. looks like. Right, and, and you've seen that. you've sure. seen it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll yeah, and then, I mean, now, we didn't even get into the whole MIDI thing. Um, well, those are MIDI. my questions too. But I think <laughs> I think for the purposes of this Geekscape, <laughs> like I. I will have many questions about MIDI because I do want to obviously yeah. use that too. That's a whole other thing. I used to, yeah, yeah that uh, there's, it's like when I was touring, I would joke it. Cause like usually everybody thinks, oh, the drums are the, the most complicated and the longest to set up when you're setting up. And it was like, no, my keyboards, my keyboard setup was, it was, it was heavier than the drums. It was took up more space than the drums. <laughs> and I basically, I basically had to set up, I had to set up an, an audio yeah. network and a MIDI network. So I, <laughs> at this, you know, all of that shit. I had a, I had a little mix, a, a sub mix, for myself going through to my my keyboard amp, because I I was running Jesus, I was running two two keyboards and a rack with four more sound modules in it when I was at my peak of schlepping things around. Um, right. <laughs> And so, MIDI yeah, is Musical Instrument Digital Interface, is that correct? Yes, that's okay. what MIDI stands for. And that's been around, um, I want to say, since like the 80s. Since yeah. basically, I mean, I had my 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 Windows 3.1 computer was running my MIDI stuff at home. So 
<laughs> that's how and that I don't even remember when I got that. That was like my second computer. So yeah, it's been MIDI's been around for forever. It, that's a whole other that's a whole other separate beast from audio recording. <laughs> right. Well, I suspect that some of this will definitely bleed over into my <laughs> artscapes at, at various points. Um, okay. I appreciate your primer. Primer. Sure. Whatever it is. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I am very happy to be here today with Erin Dembo, a woman of many talents. She has been involved with game development for over 25 years and has helped to build a number of popular franchises in science fiction gaming, including Homeworld and Sword of the Stars. She has also worked on two different artificial intelligence projects and has been interviewed for the AI ethics course taught by Athabasca University. So welcome, Erin, and, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So. The reason I wanted to talk to you about this stuff is AI art, a lot of it is being put out by Midjourney, I think is one of the really big ones. It's it's it seems to be snowballing into an avalanche, I guess. And and it's opening up a lot of questions and causing a lot of disruption, I guess, in in the art generating market, like with artists and and people who use art. And I figured it would be an interesting topic for our listeners to talk about. I'm definitely interested in it. I know and I know you are. And I guess we should just start by like if you can explain what AI art is in general, like in specific like I can, let's just explain what AI art is. What, what's happening? How do they do this? Yeah. Uh, sure. Okay. So I guess the first thing to to that I'd like to set down because a lot of people are using the word artificial intelligence in our society right now is being used for too many things, and that's the reason why people get confused about what any given artificial intelligence is and what it does. The vast, vast majority of the artificial intelligences that are being developed by big tech are not, in fact, like the ones from science fiction, like data and, you know, <laughs> and, and lore, right? Like these are not like thinking, you know, feeling beings that, that have a consciousness, etc. What they are is expert systems. And an expert system is an algorithm that performs a task. And I think that's the very first thing that should be made really clear to everybody so that they understand that they're not dealing with like rogue robots with knives in their hands, like, you know, <laughs> who are here to murder artists and take away their livelihoods. It's like, no, it's actually the same old tech bros as usual that are here to murder artists and take away their livelihoods. So like, <laughs> be sure that you know who to blame. Um, so this is just another algorithm, right? This is just another algorithm, like the one that, that tries to feed you Facebook ads. It's just another algorithm, like the one that tells you what to buy on Amazon. So at the end of the day, it is a familiar enemy if you are upset about it, right? If you're mad about it, it's just a mathematical tool. Oh, those particular um, algorithms you used in your examples, I hate, but that's course. beside and, the point. And I, think, <laughs> and I think the reason why is because you recognize them as tools of the enemy, right? Like yeah. They are powerful mathematical tools that are being used against you. And 
I think it, what it comes down to in terms of the crux of the conflicts over AI-generated art is that people have developed a powerful tool, and some people feel that it's being used against them. And that is really, I think, the crux of the problem, and it's where a lot of the emotions lie, right? Yes. So, you know, like, and, and that I think is like, if you, if you take away nothing else from this conversation, just, you know, be aware that some tech bros have developed a machine that makes art. And it, it's, it's not good art, necessarily. And it's certainly not great art. It will certainly never replace good art or great art. But it's kind of okay art. And if you look around at the world around you, and you look at the number of products and services and things, you know, objects that surround us all the time that are actually not good, that are actually not great. They're just kind of okay. Like our Ikea furniture and, you know, like the fast fashions that we can get for 15 bucks. Like a lot of the stuff in our lives is kind of okay. And AI art falls into that category, which I think is what, makes people feel that it is dangerous to artists. Well, yeah, because I think most artists are okay and not great. Yeah. So it's it's a definite threat to them. It's it's like fiber on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so... Yeah, I, I, I do like one of the things I've tried to point out in previous conversations about AI ethics, including the ones I, I the one I tried to have with the uh, the staff from Athabasca University who are trying to teach AI ethics to actual developers of AI, is that you know what's scary about expert systems like this, like the AIs that people build, is not the technology per se; it's the intentions of the people who develop it and use it. And the ways that it can be used, right? Yeah. So, you know, I immediately, when I found out about MidJourney and uh, some of my other fellow developers turned me on to it, like I, I have many colleagues, you know, stretched out over 25 years, and one of them pointed out to me that this tool existed. And since I've already worked on two AIs, and I'm very interested in this topic, I got myself a pro account, and I started trying to figure out how it works and what it can do. And the answer is that, you know, it can do some things. And of course, it's being, the tool is being improved all the time, right? Right. Like, that's another thing that's alarming about it is that it gets trained very quickly. So it, it improves rapidly, much more rapidly than a real artist can improve their skills usually, because it has thousands upon thousands of people helping it, right? All of the users, they periodically are, you know, asked to do this thing where they go through the output of the machine and they they flag the things that are good that it's done as opposed to the to the vast reams of crap that it produces so you know imagine that that you were a mind of infinite capacity and that you had thousands of art teachers working on you all the time and you know that your iterations could you know your sketches and your improvement improvements on sketches could happen in seconds right yeah, instead um, of the decades that it's taking me personally so yeah <laughs> Exactly, exactly, right. So that's kind of what's mildly terrifying about it, right? So I, I mean, I hope that that sort of sketches out the basic issues. You know, we can ask, like, you can ask certainly more directed questions if you, like, have specific oh, things I that will. you want to know. But, I will, yeah. I will. And and honestly, it's it. this is now, you know, my brain is now branching off into the other areas where AI and machine language is being used, like in, in medicine. and 
<laughs> which, yeah. which, I mean, art is important to artists and the art community and people who consume art and people who purchase art and use it for things. And it's and the human one race. Of those, yes. <laughs> and, and, and how I make a living. And, you know, so like that, that whole thing aside, I think about, I think about like, are we letting these algorithms replace doctors now? Or is this already happening? And, and I kind of remember reading something about how they train those particular AIs, and they wind up with biases that are, you know, leaning towards certain, possibly genders or racial characteristics. And, and it's it, in that kind of like blew up in my head and and i know i'm getting off topic like within five minutes but that's kind of me no no, no i don't think you're <laughs> off topic I, I think actually you're very much on topic right so like let's talk a bit about those biases okay right so every algorithm has them every ai every ai expert system will have will produce trends and biases. And this is why if you look at the, you know, I'll bring it back to the topic so that we're okay. sort of on topic. Um, this is why if, if you look at like the different AI art generators, there are four or five of them that are pretty big in the market right now. They all have different outputs, right? They do slightly different things. And if you give them, even if you give them the identical prompt, because a lot of these, these image generators are text to image generators, you give them a, a text prompt and they produce an image. You give them the exact same prompt and they will put out different output, hmm. right? There's no, there's no, it's almost as if they are, they are individuals and in a way they are. And that is because the teams, the different teams that have trained these, these AIs have used different training data and different methods. So even if like the big chunk of training data that they used all comes from the same source, each team had their own methodology and they've tweaked their machines in different ways. So, you know, all AIs are not the same in the same way that all cars are not the same, right? They're all right. machines, but they are, you know, different teams develop different quirks and different performance issues and different outputs. And so the biases in an AI come from the people who train it and they come from the data that it is trained upon. And that is why it is very hard for our expert systems to be better than we are. And that is one of the things that make them so dangerous because in many ways we suck. <laughs> like <laughs> if you, like, it, you know, it, it's very hard. Well, I mean, you know, like I have put it forward in my fiction when I was, a, when I was positing that we could have a real AI, which is an actual, you know, machine person that, you know, it would be a lot like a real person in the sense that its personality would derive from its experiences and, what it expects to the world and what it gives to the world will be based on how it's been treated. And that's the most terrifying thing about them. Um, yes. Because the people that we, nothing scares us more than the people we've abused. <laughs> um, well, and, yes, that explains a lot of behavior on a lot of the, the a lot of people in, in the United States, at least. So, yes. Right. It's why we're, it's why people are, you know, it's why white people are terrified of minorities. It's why men are sometimes scared of women. It's why, you know, anybody who's been like marginalized or hurt by us, you know, becomes scary to us. And that's why we make them like into monsters in our horror movies and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah, what's scary about AIs is that it's very hard to make them better than we are. But on the other hand, it's also faster to make them better than we are once we notice a bias that we don't like. 
we can train away from it far more quickly than we can train people. And unlike people, AIs do not have a like dedicated sense of identity and get emotional about the fact <laughs> that their biases are being changed. You know, people can get very defensive and angry when you attack their biases because they've made that part of their identity. And AI doesn't have an identity, so it doesn't care that you've made it less racist. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take that personally and, you know, start yelling at you, all lives matter. Like, I, you know, <laughs> and, I, and AI can be like, oh, okay, less racist. Well, let's go then and move on. So in that way, I guess it can be a slight improvement on us at times. Okay. So I think a lot of other than, than art, you know, the non- I don't even know what what classification to put them in 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 the middling art artist community and who are, who are starting to get upset or have been upset about the fact that this exists at all are they coming they're coming at it from from thinking about the the art that has been used to train it that you know cuz it it's what is it? The the in, they scraped the internet for five point eight three billion images or something like that, and yes, and yeah, people are saying, "Well, that's my art. I own it, and I didn't give you permission to what is essentially creating derivative works or something." And then that gets into this whole copyright issue, yeah, which. I, I did a quick search today because I kind of remembered he, reading something a month or two ago where a court had ruled that AI art is not inherently copyrightable, like the AI can't copyright the art. And then mm -hmm. I today, this morning, I read that Chris Castanova, who was the, the woman who created the graphic novel completely in mid-journey, she has received a copyright for that graphic novel, which I believe is the first AI art to get copyrighted. So that's setting yeah, a precedent. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so she can copyright it because she's a human and prompt and created the prompts for the art that this algorithm generated. So she's copywriting her use of the tool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm cool with that. And I'm, and I'm also cool with, you know, that the, the machine itself can't own property because it's a mm -hmm. machine. It's an algorithm. I'm thinking then that I don't know, have, has, I, I, have you heard that Midjourney is trying to get ownership of the art it creates via the fact that they coded the algorithm? Or did, um, is that what got I shot down? I think that they've... Yeah, I, I think that that so basically just to take a quick step back and I will talk about Midjourney because it's the it's the uh, AI art generator that I have the most experience with. Please keep in mind that that different AI different AI teams have taken different approaches to copyright. They are some of them are mutually exclusive. So like don't don't think that there's one tech bro approach to this that that you know we can all kind of beat the stuffing out of and we're done. 
Um, no, we can't, right? Different teams are right. taking different attitudes. They're taking different approaches and they're making different legal arguments. So we're going to have to knock them down one by one if, we, if we're going to do that. So far as mid-journey goes, I think one of the important things to understand about mid-journey is that mid-journey uses Discord as its interface. And therefore, the art that is being created by mid-journey a lot of the time, especially by users who are not paying a lot to use it, is being created in a community context. So what that means is you can enter any prompt that you want, but any other user who's on Discord at the time can see the prompt that you're using, can see the art that you're doing, and can grab that art and, and you know, use it as a like a visual prompt for their own art or use it, you know, do an upgraded version of that from them for themselves that will end up on their feed and stuff like that. So a lot of mid-journey's ter mid terms of service are designed to cover their butts over the fact that their art is being created and and in this community context, right? Um, that's why unless you're you're paying for a private account, which will allow you to to sort of make your your art with the AI private, they say that you can't have any copyright on it because they don't want to try and defend your copyright from thirty million people who can grab it right there because <laughs> it's right there in the open, right? Right. Um, you know, that would be self-defeating and very difficult. And also, it's kind of counter to what they're looking for because they want that community context. They want people to learn from each other and to see what's possible by watching other artists work. So it's like a gigantic studio where everybody's able to look over each other's shoulders and get ideas and, and learn new things. So yeah, I don't know what will eventually happen in terms of individual people using these tools, copywriting the work that is done. But I would argue that when it comes to something where it's an extended work with multiple pieces of art, which all have to be coordinated and prompted by the same person, that starts to be the kind of commitment of time and the kind of commitment of creativity and imagination that I would associate with a valid copyright. So whereas copywriting one image, eh, okay, you know, Midjourney can produce that pretty quick and it doesn't take much from you. But by the time you've done an entire graphic novel, which is multiple pages with multiple art images that all have to somehow coordinate and make sense. Yeah. Then you're starting to get into a little bit more, you know, valid human interaction with the machine and, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I don't I don't honestly see this settling out in a legal sense for at least a decade. I, you know, I mean, I I as I was googling this morning, I saw the long list of people now who are now suing. I know Getty Images is one of them. And and they're basically they're suing over the use of the of their images in the training data. Yeah. And and I remember, you know, in your in one of your Substack essays that you were you were thinking that this is gonna play out in like two ways, like the you were something you called the Spotify model where artists who have been incorporated in the training data would get some kind of royalty when their art is used to like uh, like your I think your specific thing was if someone is saying in the style of living artist or artist whose work is still under copyright that they would get a a, yeah. a micro payment, which I'm hoping would be more than Spotify because I think Spotify pays like 
three tenths of a ridiculously cent small per, song, per yeah. play. Yeah, <laughs> I get I get about sixty enough. cents a year for for people playing my stuff on Spotify. So yeah, I know it's not a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think yeah, uh, I, it's it's yeah. Basically, it, what I have pointed out to people before we leave the topic of training data behind, <laughs> I I've written a couple of Substack essays where I was trying to explain how these machines work and what's wrong with them, and in terms of legally and ethically. And the training data is one of their Achilles heels, right? the The training data is the place where it is easiest to attack them le legally. <laughs> Yeah, and so I have point. I, I have pointed people towards the training data as a you know, because most of these machines are trained on a data set which is called Lion Five B, and as you pointed out, it has over five billion images in it. These were done. These were accumulated. Uh, and the images are not you know they are not just images. They're clips, which mm. means they are images that are associated with text data. So there has to be text data in order for an image to be useful to the AI. But, you know, the internet is a big place. And Lion 5B is was created through what's called data scraping, which is where you have a machine that goes through all of the publicly available data on the internet. And they came up with over 5 billion clips, which is images that do have some data associated with them. And they used that to create this, tra this training data set you know, I did did a calculation about, you know, if you had to go through Lion 5B and figure out the copyright information for every image in that training set, how long would that take you? And the way it worked out was, I think, over 11,000 years, even if you only spent one minute on each image. Well, and that's how those numbers work out. When you have yikes. that many zeros after the word after 5.5, you, you end up with a lot of time to go through that training data. Ah, <sighs> yeah. While you were saying that, I was just had this image of all of the the tens of thousands of people that just got recently laid off from Twitter and Microsoft and and Facebook can now get hired to go look at that all. And you know, if you have if something's going to take eleven thousand years, you need like thousands of people doing it all at the same time, and it could actually yeah, get and done. You know. Yeah. And as I said, that projection was based on spending one minute to track down the copyright data, right? Like, you know, I, think about how long you can spend trying to track down copyright data on an image. Uh, yeah. So the the other important thing to point out about that is that Getty Images is not an artist, right? No. Getty Images is a copyright holder. Yes. And, you know, not necessarily a friendly one. Like no. they're a big company. But they are not necessarily pro-artist. They are just, you know, they're pro-Getty images. They like to have control over image data. They like to have control over art. They've appropriated control over a lot of art, a lot of the best available images of a lot of important art and art history that is in the public domain. So, like, I'm not necessarily a big friend to Getty images. No, uh, I, I mean, know. if my stuff was, you know, that... <sighs> It's a, you know, it's a stock site and I know they're very, they're very litigious in the, at, to begin with that I, because yeah. they're very protective of what they consider to be their, their intellectual property. And, and, uh, well, I mean, at least it got one of the companies I work for to actually pay to use stock images instead of just putting stuff up that they steal on the internet. Cause they got dinged for a few, a few tens of thousands of dollars for two images that, that they're summer intern webmaster put up on their corporate site 
So yeah. they learned their lesson for that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, the, 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 tech, the tech people who are building these AIs may have to learn similar harsh lessons. And some of them, you know, some of these teams may not survive. Right. Yeah. Well, like, and you know, the the only problem in terms of attacking them, and and the reason why it's fifty fifty whether the artists, the individual artists, and the groups of artists who are suing them will win, is that you know, a lot of these big projects that are based on big scrapes are also backed by big tech. Mm. Right. They're backed by companies like Google and Microsoft, and it's very hard to beat the big five in terms yes. of get taking them to court. They are very large, very powerful corporations. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't challenge them. We absolutely no. should. I, um, I really, yeah. I wish they could just be ethical from the beginning. Like, hey, we're doing this thing. And I guess it's because they don't want to pay out before they start, before they figure out how to make their billions of dollars off of the billions of images that they didn't own in the first place. And I, yeah, I don't it's a broad, it's a big broad, uh, it's a big broad appropriation of, of information that exists in a commons that we created. Yeah. Right. And by we, I just mean we collectively, the human race have created well, a data set that has tremendous value. And the issue is they feel that they can appropriate it and monetize it without providing any benefit to the people who, you know, who created it. Well, uh, so. that is that is a problem that actually goes way beyond just AI art. That Yes, it does. <laughs> Although, I mean, it, it wouldn't be bad to kind of put these mega corporations on notice that this is not a business practice that the world will accept anymore. I, you know, I mean, it would be no, really not great. at all. It would be really great. And and if it has to go through, if this is the where we get that wedge in, that's fine with me because I would really like I that. I totally agree. To stop. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you draw the line as long as you draw the line somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, if this is the if this is the thing, right, if this is the thing that finally breaks the camel's back. Yeah. Good. Right. Yeah. Something had to, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I personally I see a lot of benign uses for MidJourney and other AI art generators. But you know, as I point out, humanity kind of sucks. And there are a lot of ways that this can be used to do harm. Oh, yeah. And a lot of ways that it can harm, you know, people who are already kind of at the margins of the art world, right, and scraping by, yes. and put them out of work, and, you know, etc. So, yeah, I get it. And yeah, that's why I contributed to the GoFundMe for the Concept Artists Association who are going to be suing them, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, go for it. Somebody has to sue them, you know. <laughs> like, somebody has to bring somebody has to bring these arguments forward, and somebody has to to push the the boundaries here and let them and yeah. put them on notice. Yeah, and and it's you know as as usual, our technology is outpacing our codified legal books, or I don't know what our system of laws about things like this. It's <sighs> yeah. Well, it's I mean, like, everyone's keep in looking mind for that, like. <laughs> yeah, we call it copyright for a reason, right? Yeah. Copyright law is is specifically based on a technology, and it was a technology that once didn't exist, and therefore we needed no laws about it. But now we do, right? Because right. before the printing press, there was no need for copyright, right? Because there was not, you know, a bunch of people who could copy a book and then make money from selling copies of it. 
similarly, you know, when a new technology like this, which is potentially really disruptive, right, every bit as disruptive in its way as the printing press, it needs regulation too. Otherwise, it's going to hurt people. So, you know, the law has to follow the tech that gets made. Yeah. You're also an author of many books. And are there any that you particularly want to tell our listeners about right now? Or if there's something else um, that you're doing that's that you want to talk about? You know, I'm still making games. I'm currently the lead writer of a game called Tatsumiko, which is set in a brand new fantasy world that I'm helping to build. You know, I have a military science fiction novel that's out there, which includes a character who has an onboard AI, which he thinks is just an expert system, but, you know, will turn out in future novels not to be, if I ever get around to writing them. And I have a short story <laughs> collection that people have a look at called Monsoon and Other Stories, which, you know, I still think is pretty good. I'd be happy to have you read it. But yeah, I, I, um, yeah. you can also catch okay. me on Substack. Yeah. So I really appreciate this conversation that we had and you being here. And uh, I want to thank you for being here today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got questions? We got answers. <laughs> and this time we have a question from Tom Limoncelli. And Tom asks... What's the one thing in your house that you should throw away but haven't? The um, one thing. The that's, one. The, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, I got, I got it. It's, it's the, the large box of papers from my daughter's daycare. And that's probably going to get thrown away fairly soon, actually. <laughs> like, oh, we would get daily cool. reports from the daycare. You know, like wow. if she pooped and, and if she used the potty and, and she's and like if, 30 now, right? Almost. Yeah. Well, she's 29 now. Yeah. So, wow. okay. <laughs> and I had kept all of them and she was in daycare for a couple of years. So there's literally hundreds of these things. That's so funny. They could go. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> they're sentimental. <laughs> and then there's like, that's too much. Uh -huh. <laughs> so for me, I, sometimes keep food things that I think like, I, I know I'm not going to eat it, but I feel like I should eat it. So I keep it, but I know I'm, I won't. <laughs> and I don't have anything. It's not something gross in the refrigerator right now. I'm just thinking about there's some like boxed, like soup type things that are, they're a couple, they're, they're old, you know, but I'm like, uh -huh. well, what if I run out of everything and I'm throwing away <laughs> Good calories that I might need if there's a you know there's, apocalypse. Yeah, I think I'm I think I'm probably safe to get rid of this damn suit if I get more. <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird thing, but anyway. Oh, my daughter, we my daughter went through my kitchen cat when we in 2017 when we were redoing the kitchen and we were emptying out all of the cabinets and and she's like looking at these boxes of a lot of it was this tight. Thai food that you, it's just like heat and eat Thai food that expired mm -hmm. in 2009. Oh, wow. <laughs> that it, it was like eight years out of date kind of shit. And she went through my spices. She goes, I can't, you know, like, like, like the, like the spiced cover design had changed like four times 
from right. that company. So you some know, things, some things are good forever, though, and I think that yeah, but some things are, know, but some things are not. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> anyway, that was a good question, Tom. Thank you, and it should inspire me to do some spring cleaning. <laughs> Oh, in our next show, Robin is going to interview pediatrician, parent coach, and author, Dr. Lulu. She is the mother of a transgender young adult and has insights to share about how parents can better understand and embrace their LGBTQ children. And then in the Why Is This Awesome segment, it is Del Toro's Pinocchio. Yay. I'm glad we're going to do that so one. Tune in next in two weeks, too. So... <laughs> Absolutely. So I just want to give a little sign off here. I'm Robin Renee, and you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan, on Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you hang out on Discord and or in the subgenius circles, you may know me as Andrew Genius. So if you want to connect in either of those places, uh, let me know. And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs, uh, even though I am I have an account there, I haven't really logged in there in weeks, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. And remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Levescape. Uh, so please do send us your questions like Tom did and or any other thing you might want to know, and we might answer it on an upcoming show. So until next time. Be well. Get ready for our AI overlords. <laughs> and keep left. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Leftscape. Thanks for listening.